0: Today I'm going to give a sermon um, in this kind of season of Advent. How many of you grew up kind of observing or celebrating Advent? Okay, so maybe about half, the other half. I did not grow up with it, but I've really come to appreciate, and it's probably my, my favorite Christmas uh, Christian calendar seasons. So Advent really starts off the Christian calendar. You have Advent, you have Christmas, you have Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and then you have a season what we call Ordinary Time. Um, in which there's nothing happening. And then Advent kind of starts everything. It's kind of like our new year. So in the secular calendar, we have January 1st, which comes from like a Roman tradition thingamajig. Um, in, in a secular year, it's New Year's are about like celebration, fireworks, um, coldness. Um, but in in the Christian calendar, uh, that the start of our new year is really a time, not so much of celebration and resolutions, but of waiting, of kind of being in a season of longing and expectations, because we're preparing and gearing up for Christmas, for the birth of Jesus. And so the image I like to think of is, you know, you're kind of walking on this road. It's maybe a little dark, there's shadows, and there's this light at the very end, and you're kind of walking and kind of yearning and straining for it. I think, I'm, I feel like I'm almost in the season of Advent, um, but now we get to actually kind of be in this kind of mind and headspace collectively. And for Advent, we are going through the first um, bit of Isaiah chapter 40. Um, it was kind of genius vision dreamed up by Angela, who, um, how many of you familiar with Handel's Messiah? Okay, so you know it's based in Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't know, it's some like German guy who wrote this like famous Christmas thing. Um, and uh, I think it's German, I forget. And um, so, the, so last week was the first week of Advent and Mira went, a, Walked us through the first couple lines. I'm going to go through the kind of middle section, and next week Jonathan will finish with the kind of concluding section. So Isaiah typically, actually, most scholars believe is written as two different manuscripts kind of combined as one. There's, and so really we refer to 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 is in 2nd Isaiah. And the distinctions between two manuscripts is that the first manuscript was written at a point in time in which um, Jerusalem had not been captured by the Babylonian Empire and taken into exile yet. 2nd Isaiah is post-exile. So the audience is already kind of Oh, yeah. dis, dis, displaced from their homes, they're in captivity, and they're looking for some message of hope, and they're waiting, they're, you could argue, in a season of Advent. Um, so it's in that context, now we're gonna read Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, and that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Mira went over this passage briefly last time, but you can see the narrator saying, all right, you've suffered. Your time of suffering is done, and now you'll be comforted. Now you will return home. And this is the passage that follows afterwards, and that's what I'll be focusing on. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places smooth and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. So it's a pretty famous passage. I think it's referenced a lot in kind of American culture. Um, Martin Luther King cites it in I Have a Dream. And this image, particularly this highway, some commentators believe is like referring to an actual highway. Namely, um, I think the name is a trans-Jordan highway that connects, that would be the road that the um, Babylonian exiles would walk on from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So. Then, the, if, if you buy that this highway might actually be a kind of literal highway, then the question is, why is this narrator preoccupied with making the highway straight? Why trying to get this level ground thing going? So I'm going to give you my take on things. And in end of this paragraph, the narrator says, all people will see the glory of God. All people meaning everyone. And I began to think as I was ruminating on this imagery of bumpy roads and hills and valleys about biking in New York City. How many of you bike, kind of, to get around here? So, you know, like, the conditions of the roads really affect how you bike. If there was a hole coming up, you kinda got to a swerve, and you could, like, flying off your handlebars. Um, the cobblestones that are very, like, chic and Dumbo and Soho are, like, a nightmare to bike on. Um, and I also drive in New York. Um, I've inherited my parents' 1998 Toyota Corolla. Um, and when I drive, even though it's a pretty old car, like, I'm not really concerned too much about whether the road is bumpy or not, because I know my car can kind of overcome it. So when I'm in the car, I'm just, in general, less cognizant of the conditions around me, because I have a buffer. I have something that insulates me from the outside world. Whereas when I'm biking, I'm basically super exposed. It's just me and the wheels if I hit. If something happens, um, my body's on the line. So in this picture that I think the narrative of Second Isaiah is laying out, He's, in my mind, when he's saying all people will be traveling down this highway We will to see the glory of God, he's not just, he's thinking about people who are able to maybe afford to hire camels or horses to be able to get up and down the mountains and valleys quickly. But he's also thinking about people who can't afford to do that and have to walk the entire way on foot. Or people who are differently abled and so walk at a slower pace than other people. And he's thinking, I think, when he says, I want to make the roads straight and level the roads because he's trying to make it as easy as possible, as accessible as possible for all people, regardless of class, regardless of ability, to be able to return home and to see the temple of God in Jerusalem and to see the glory of God. And so you kind of see the connection I'm making a little bit between roads and bumpiness and access, like that. okay, we'll come back later. But this is important because this passage in Isaiah 40 gets cited all four Gospels, which is kind of a rare occurrence. And narratives of the Gospels particularly use this passage as a way to interpret the figure of John the Baptist, who is kind of um, seen as like a prophet who prefigures Jesus and sort of lays the way and prepares the way for Jesus. And this is particularly focused on Luke chapter three. Um, This is how John is described. During the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The cooker roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. I don't have time to get into it, but you notice there's a switch here. Glory is swapped out for Mm -hmm. salvation. we can chat about it later if you're like into theology. But, um, but you can see, what the larger point I'm trying to make is that the narrator is using this passage and saying, hey, maybe, this pa- maybe the figure we've talked about in this passage is this person who we're seeing called John the Baptist, who is calling droves of people to go into the wilderness and repent and be baptized. So one way to interpret this kind of imagery is to see that John the Baptist is leveling the spiritual roadblocks in our hearts. Um, to prepare the way for Jesus. you know, He's trying to get us to straighten out the paths in our hearts, to level the mountains and valleys in our minds and our bodies. Um, and I think that's like a totally fine and great interpretation. But my hunch is that John the Baptist is talking more than just spiritual roadblocks. I think he's also talking about material roadblocks. But, and I say that because if you look at the passage that comes afterwards, you see, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce food in keeping with repentance. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two coats should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Which I think is I think quite interesting and surprising when you think about you know, calling people to repentance. This is not maybe the first line you would think that someone would say when someone asks you the question. So the next paragraph says, even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. So John is is issuing a very concrete material and economic call for people in power to stop using the power to get more money and for people who have extra resources to share with those who who need them. No, no, John didn't say if you have 10 coats, then maybe consider donating one. He's saying if you have two coats, then maybe you should share, uh, because there's someone who does not have a coat. And so eventually, you know, everyone will kind of have one coat. And I think he meant all of this as a lifelong ethic. You know, it's good in general not to abuse your power. It's good in general to share your stuff. But I think when he said share your coats and food, he also meant it like literally, like right now. He wanted people to do it right there and then. And the reason I think that is, Let's, in the, I think I did look this up, in the Ignatian tradition, there's a um, particular spiritual exercise that when you read a Bible passage, you try to put yourself in the passage and imagine and fill in the details that are not there. So I'm just gonna do that. So I'm imagining, I'm in the desert, and I'm seeing tax collectors, and I am sol- see soldiers. And Ignatian, by the way, it's um, uh, St. Ignatius from the Catholic tradition. Um, I'm seeing tax collectors and soldiers, and they probably have their servants coming out, carrying. Maybe chests of and crates of clothing and coats so they could stay warm because the desert can get pretty cold at night. And maybe they have like camels laden with bags full of like dried fruit and dried meat and milk and bread. And maybe next to them, um, you know, is there, oh, I'm trying to think. Yes, and, 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 and these people were coming, they probably were not thinking about the mountains and the valleys that they had to ride on to get to John the Baptist, because they were probably, maybe they were sitting in a carriage, and the driver was doing all the work, and they were just chilling, reading the latest like New Yorker article <laughs> on like mass incarceration, and, um, <laughs> and you know, what have you. And then next to them, this is like their Burning Man ritual, you know, and then next to them, there's a crowd, contingent of people who walked to get there, who really sweated every inch of that mountain and valley to get to John the Baptist. And they're carrying just the clothes on the backs, they have some maybe food in their pockets. Um, and the reason why I think this is probably the case is because if you look in the passage, when the word crowd is referenced, and Miriam preached to us last Sunday, it tends to refer to mob more than like kind of an orderly crowd. And so you probably have all kinds of people flocking to John the Baptist. And the other clue we have is that uh, the narrative says, even tax collectors were there. And if you recall, from last Sunday, Mira talked about how tax collectors use their powers to kind of extort extra money for people for their own gain. So they come, give me your taxes and give me 5% for my own pockets. And so when you say even tax collectors, that signals that the rest of the crowd are probably very far from tax collectors. So you probably have the very poor and the very rich kind of gathered together to hear this message of repentance and baptism. So I imagine John Baptist looking at this crowd and saying, wow, you people who have a lot, you need to share with people who don't have as so much. You tax collector and soldier, you have these mountains of food, you need to use some of that and fill the valleys, fill the stomachs of people who are next to you because it's really cold and there are no grocery stores nearby, you know, you have to kind of pull the resources together. So if you buy my interpretation, then the next question is, why now? You know, why can't John Bax wait for people to just do this when they get back home, something like that? Why the urgency? And in my kind of schema, the way I think about it, I think it's a question of access. So John Baptist is baptizing people in drawers. You have to line up you know, and get baptized. He's preaching for days. And so he wants to make it this kind of spiritual experience in the desert as accessible as possible for anyone who wants to access it. Which means if you need food, you need to stay warm in order to wait to be baptized, in order to wait and hear the sermon, then he'll make sure you get food, you get fed and you are warm. And maybe, John the Baptist is trying to get, um, get people food and stay warm because he wants them to be able to wait for someone or something to arrive. And maybe actually everyone's waiting because they heard this is a guy named Jesus, Sounds interesting, maybe he's gonna come, maybe he's gonna get baptized by John. And that actually is what happens a few paragraphs later. Jesus shows up, he's baptized by John, and then the Bible says that after everyone is baptized, so everyone has to kind of go through the whole process, then the Holy Spirit um, descends upon Jesus in the bodily form of a dove, and a voice from heaven says, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So there are many ways to interpret the significance of this statement. Um, and I'm partial to this particular interpretation that I think if you read Richard Rohr, you'll be familiar with this model of interpretation that takes Jesus' relationship with God as a model for what all human relationships should be and can be. So when So for those of you who are familiar with Paul's writings, thinking of Jesus as literally the first Adam. So in that interpretation, when this voice from heaven, presumably God, says to Jesus, you're my son, you're my beloved, with you I'm well pleased, God is really using Jesus as a way to say to everyone who's present, everyone here, you're all my beloved, you're all my sons, you're all my daughters, you're all my children, and with you I'm well pleased. And I think it's really important that God says this before Jesus begins his ministry. So you think about it, if you're like a writer, and this parental figure says, I'm really pleased with you, usually you will place that at the end after this child has accomplished all these things. Like, oh, great job, you know, blah, blah, I'm really pleased with you. Instead, this message is placed in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He has healed zero people, performed zero miracles, cast out zero demons. The chapter before this, Luke chapter two, he's a 12-year-old boy talking back to his parents. Like, the, you know, this, this guy's accomplished nothing. He's a loser, I mean, and so, but, and, you know, he turns out to be pretty great, but you know, and when he shows up, there's nothing. Um, and so this message that God you know, gives to Jesus, I think really fuels him for the rest of his ministry, the rest of his life. And it's a message that everyone who is in the wilderness with John, with Jesus, hears as well, because, because they have the material ability to access and hear and wait for this message. And I think this message is, a, I would think, why most of us show up to church because the message that we are beloved children is not necessarily a message that some of us have received from our parents. The message that we are beloved and worthy before we have accomplished anything is not a message that our culture and our capitalist economy really promotes, especially in New York City, where your value, your, lab, your identity is defined by your productivity, by your labor, and how, someone, how much someone is willing to compensate you for that labor. So I think this is why we show up to church. We come, we sing songs, we hear sermons to remind us that we are beloved by God, that God is pleased with us even when we are resting, even when we're doing nothing, even if we didn't get anything done on our to-do list, even if we just wasted time, we are still beloved. We come here because no one's gonna ask us, what did you do to deserve to be here? Anyone can come, eat a bagel, drink coffee, sit down in this chair. So my question to us today then is, just look around, who is here? I actually kind of look around. Who is here? And then ask yourself, who is not here? Who does not have access to this church today? When I was um, installed to be a deacon about two years ago, it was a very important event because it was the first time I think I was given a church leadership role uh, as an openly queer person. And before that, I always been either closeted or had some weird theology. Um, And... (laughs) You know how I mean. And so I emailed a bunch of my friends to show up and I said, you know, I'm gonna be installed as a deacon, please come. And one of them, I emailed a friend named Sy from my time at university um, at Columbia. And I was a bit nervous whether he was gonna come because I knew he was still discerning like where he stood exactly in LGBT um, issues theologically. So the service comes and goes, like it's good, I'll come back and pray for you, like I cry, everyone cries. And then afterwards, I check my phone I see like, two, two missed calls and a text from Sai. And text friend, congratulations, Sarah. Um, I'm sorry I had to leave right after service. I got into church 40 minutes late because I couldn't find the entrance to your church. I was walking outside, I was circling around, actually, for like 40 minutes, and I tried calling you, but it's okay, I eventually figured it out. And I felt terrible. Sai <laughs> um, is like a lawyer, he's like super smart, and he's blind. So, I didn't think to myself, oh, maybe I should wait outside church to make sure my friend like, knew the entrance to get in. I just gave him the address. Um, I didn't think to myself, let me check my phone to see if he got in okay, instead of you know, just putting on silent, leaving it alone. I wasn't thinking about how to make sure his path to this church, like physical path, was as clear and as level and as accessible as possible. And Si's so lucky enough that he can more or less get around with like a walking stick, he doesn't really need help. Um, but if his kind of ability issue was around mobility, around wheelchairs, he might even have a harder time of getting here because only 25% of New York City subway stations are ADA compliant. So I think you know, obviously there are many of us here today who struggle with the idea that we are God's beloved and God's well pleased with us and we're here to kind of hear this message and kind of immerse it and try to internalize it. And I think, you know, it's good. It's, I think I feel grateful. I think we should all feel grateful to be able to be here and. Hopefully a space that um, tells you that you're beloved no matter what. And I think gratitude for this space looks like paying attention to who does not have access today because they are also God's beloved. So I ask you again, who is not here? Who does not have access to this church? Who couldn't maybe afford the subway right to come to church today? who actually has been coming for the past few Sundays, but just got called in for an extra shift, and they need the money so they can't turn it down, who started working a second job on the weekends to support their ailing parents, who has been working long nights for six days of the week, and Sunday morning's the only morning they can sleep in, who isn't here because their boss just called them in, who can't be here because she's taking care of a family member and got really injured and their health insurance sucks, Who doesn't have access to the space? And I think the answer to this question is a lot more people than you think. Recent survey found that nearly six in 10 Americans do not have enough liquid savings to cover an unexpected $500 expense. And when you don't have enough savings from living paycheck to paycheck or less, you really feel every bump in the road. You're tense, you're on edge all the time one, like, say, traffic ticket, unexpected medical bill, and that's $100, $1,000 out of like, your groceries, out of like, really basic essentials, out of your rent. And so you're anxious and you're frustrated, and then your kid comes and asks you, can I get new sneakers, because my friends have that, and you snap, and you yell, and you have, you have all this frustration that comes out, and then everyone feels angry, everyone feels stressed. And maybe you're a parent who has, like, like my mom, memorized the price per pound of every grocery item, in a five-block radius of all grocery stores, and knows exactly, depending on what you need, where to go to for what, and if there are coupons available or something like that. Or maybe you're the person who's hanging out with a group of friends, and you deliberately order like an appetizer, and everyone's ordering drinks and like an entree, and in the end, some dude's like, "Oh, we'll just split the bill, right?" <laughs> and you're like so angry, you want to kill this person. <laughs> We've all been there. And so you're counting like every dollar, every mountain, every valley. Because you have no buffer, like, you, and if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I, none of this really applies to me, that's great to not live that kind of stress. But maybe then you have two codes and you need to share. But the, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep, yep. so but the point is not to like point fingers and say like, if you're poor, you're lazy, you're rich, you're greedy. I think the point is to think, ask questions about the larger systems we're in that get in the way of people's ability to access this space or just any church for that matter. What kind of economic system do we live in where we are the wealthiest country in the world and we have one of the highest inequalities of wealth? The country with the highest number of both mountains and valleys. How is it that our banking system is so out of reach for so many Americans that 25% of Americans and 10% of New Yorkers are unbanked, meaning they carry cash to save, as a way of um, um, holding money and saving money? because either the account maintenance fees are too high, the account minimums are too high, or you require a social security number, and if you're undocumented, you don't have access to SSN. And if you happen to know, if you're, why is it that if you're unbanked, your only access to financial services are payday loans, really high interest rates, or check cashing services that take 10% of your paycheck just to give you the cash that you need. And then when you're walking in on Fridays, you have to be extra vigilant, because everyone knows that's payday, and your chances of getting mugged doubles. Why is it that the neighborhood, the borough, the least access to banking is in the Bronx? Mm -hmm. Or let's look at a healthcare system. Why do we live in a system that that says that the lives of rich people are in some ways worthier than the lives of the poor? Where if you can't afford health insurance or good insurance, something as simple as allergy shots can cost you $1,500. And we already talked about how little buffer most Americans have when they face unexpected bills. Just last year, 500,000 Americans declared bankruptcy just to medical bills, which is the highest, single, single highest reason for bankruptcy in this country. And I think we have to ask these questions because, typically, in America, because we kind of believe in this meritocratic ideal, if you're struggling to pay your bills and just like, stay afloat, usually you, have, you blame yourself. You say, I'm not hustling enough, too dumb, too lazy, I need to be kind of working harder. Um, because if you're in a country with a lot of inequality, the ideological tool of a meritocracy is perfect because it justifies the inequality that exists. It says, if you're up there, you deserve it, if you're down there, you deserve it, and that's the way it is. But that's not the message of salvation that God reveals to Jesus. <coughs> message of salvation, of glory, is that we are all deserving before we have done anything. And so I think we have to ask these questions about the systems that create mountains and valleys that prevent people not just from accessing church and church spaces, but prevent people from living in the reality that they are equally beloved and worthy and deserving before we've done anything. Because when the systems in society makes you, treat you like crap, you start feeling like crap. You start to feel like maybe I'm not. The idea that I'm God's beloved is so far from everyday reality. So what mountains and valleys are we facing today? What roads and bumps need to be leveled and smoothed out for us as a nation, for us uh, in the world at large, for our city, for our neighborhood, for yourselves, for the people next to you? I hope and pray that this is a question that you'll pray about hopefully sometime today and maybe this week and throughout. I wanna close with a prayer. Dear God, thank you for the revelation and the affirmation that we are beloved and worthy before we have done anything, before we, that we are deserving of everything even we have done nothing. I pray that this is a message that will start to seep into our bones and into our hearts and into our minds and change the way we act and change the way we look at our neighbors and that it empowers and us to think about the mountains and valleys and systems that need to be leveled so that everyone can truly live in that reality. In your name, amen.